Hello and welcome back to What Have We Done for episode eight. Episode eight, that's right. And we're calling this episode Where in the World is Carmine San Diego? Well done, I love that. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I wrote that down as like a cheesy thing that I assumed we would cut because it's so ridiculous, but oh. you liked it, so I'm keeping it <laughs> and I'm, I'm a little bit proud of it. Yes, well, just a really quick thing back to Halloween. I was Carmen San Diego for Halloween this year, and so it is triply <laughs> beloved in my heart. But anyway. Yeah, and then the name comes from Carmine which is a very obscure, great variety that we're going to be talking about today. So tell us about the Carmine Grape. So the Carmine Grape. Well, actually, let's go ahead and just start off with a, with a taste. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, let me go. There's no more introduction needed. <laughs> we're just going to drink it while we talk about it. That sounds good to me. <laughs> I'll start it with Thank a, you. a wee bit. So we are doing a side-by-side -side tasting of a 2015 and 2016 Carmine wine, which we'll talk about a little bit more later in the episode. Um, but we're going to go ahead and get a head start on, a, on <laughs> tasting. <laughs> and we're starting with the 2015. Yes. Uh, excuse the cork noises. <laughs> there we go. Um, so the 2015 is from John Evan, which is the owner and winemaker of Big White House in Livermore, California. And this, I guess, label in which he produces wine is like his specialty. Ooh, I can't wait to taste it. Uh, also, this is called the... The Empyrean. The Empyrean. There's usually a story with these names. Yes. Maybe if we have enough wine, we'll tell you the story. Do you want to air it? <laughs> I got a fancy aerator. Okay, I got an aerator from Target, and it works pretty well. I'm okay to just slow sip this and let it air naturally for a bit but yes i think you need it there yeah good call i think it also it is good that we have them in the fridge so we um pop the wines in the fridge for a second just to cool them down because despite the fact that it it is getting a little cooler here in california the wines were not warm but just mm -hmm. could have been a little bit cooler yeah and cool still means like 65 degrees. So. 30 at night, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't keep my wine outdoors at night. <laughs> True. <laughs> um, do we want to talk about initial thoughts on the wine or do we want to talk more about the wine first? Let's talk about the wine first. Okay. All right. So the Carmine, well, I got this information from two primary sources and that is from the UC Davis website mm -hmm. and a New York Times obituary. To note, the UC Davis website, they have a viticulture program, so they're pretty authoritative when it comes to wines. Yes. I don't know about the NYT obituaries page, but uh, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, it's a good 
moment to shout out UC Davis. UC mm-hmm. Davis is like this country's foremost viticulture program. It's a big agricultural school. Uh, it's one of our California state schools. And it's a really prestigious program. A lot of the big names in wine, especially here in California, are Davis grads. Um, yeah, so actually their web their website has a lot of information on on grapes and wine making and all the sciencey stuff behind grapes too. It's really cool. Ooh. So this story starts with a man named Philip Wagner, and Philip Wagner was the founder of Bury Vineyards in Maryland, just northwest of Baltimore. And he was known for propagating vineyards um, across the East Coast in the post-Prohibition era. And he specialized in French hybrid grapes. His wife, Jocelyn Wagner, uh, was known famously for smuggling the Vidal Blanc grape from France (laughs) to the U.S. in a damp towel in her purse during the Prohibition era. Um, That was the first time the Vidal Blanc grape came to the United States. Uh, So Philip Wagner was famous for writing a book called American Wines and How to Make Them, published in 1933. and was one of the most influential winemakers in America at the time. He imported a lot of different French varietals and was known for experimenting with different hybrids that could adapt to a very up-and-down Baltimore climate. (laughs) And he even opened a a nursery where he could sell different wine cuttings for different uh, winemakers to go purchase. And that nursery, I believe, is still operating. Oh, that's awesome. I don't think it's a public business, but I guess if you're a winemaker, you're in the know, you can find out where to go. Um, to get different grape cuttings. So being a winemaker on the East Coast, he was trying to find a grape that was cold climate ready, but also big and bold like a cab. Hmm. And that's when he decided to solicit the help of Dr. Harold Olmo of UC Davis. So Dr. Harold Olmo was a great breeder and geneticist born in 1909 in San Francisco, Hmm. who received his bachelor's in science in horticulture from UC Berkeley in 1931 and his PhD in 1934 in genetics, um, I believe also from UC Berkeley. He was employed um, as a scholar and researcher at UC Davis, and he released, in his time at UC Davis, he released 29 different grape varieties. Um, Not all of those were wine grapes. He was also really big in uh, grapes that produced raisins Hmm. and grapes that were used (laughs) in like grape juices and other non-wine related grape products. Um, He was also really accomplished um, elsewhere, including being a global consultant for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. Um, And he pioneered clonal selection, uh, which is a genetic technique that made the Chardonnay grape growable across California. And the result of his clonal selection in Chardonnay grapes is now in over 100,000 acres of Chardonnay in California. Uh, Clonal selection, I believe is, if I understood it correctly, um, was basically using like genetic um, science to weed out inferior grapes to only be able to produce like really high quality um, wine producing grapes. Which, Really quick note. Mm-hmm. I mean, just think about the time period in which he's doing this. Genetics was very new in the 1940s and, you know, 1950s. I think the whole genome wasn't sequenced until 1957. I could be making this up. 
I may check this to make sure, <laughs> but uh, it's that's amazing that yeah. this work was going on in wine. And maybe we should start thinking about how many scientific innovations were spearheaded by the wine industry. Yeah, absolutely. And he was doing this work into the 70s and 80s. So he died in 2006. Got it. Um, and I believe the Carmine, it's not quite clear exactly what year, but it looks like it was the early to mid 70s where the Carmine was uh, officially created. Gotcha. So we have Philip Wagner and Dr. Harold Olmo on a quest to make a big, bold red grape that you can grow in really cold regions. Um, so enter the Carmine. The Carmine is a really crazy genetic invention, and it, it came from um, joining a, a Cabernet Sauvignon and a Carignan into a new grape, and then that new grape uh, was created with a Merlot grape, which mm-hmm. resulted in the Carmine. Um, again, this was made in the, in the early to mid-70s. So the Carmine is a late budding and a loose cluster grape, very much like a cab, um, and as designed can withstand colder climates. Uh, it's also famous for uh, the color of its leaves. In the fall, it tur- turns a really deep burgundy. Hmm. So some of the East Coast vineyards who, who plant it use that as a, like an aesthetic thing as well. Um, it's often confused on the internet, and this came up a lot in my research with Carmenere. There's no relation to a Carmenere, it is completely different. But if you Google like Carmine, half your results will be Carmenere because Google doesn't even know what a Carmine is. Um, there's very, very few results. So the characteristics of a Carmine, it's, it's known for a kind of strange bell pepper flavor that I guess the, the, the judge and how good your Carmine is is how much you've eliminated that bell pepper flavor. Um, Flavors of tobacco and even mint. Mm. It is medium to full-bodied with a dark and inky color and pairs very much with the same kind of foods as a cab. So meats, big heavy meals, and chocolate. There are only five known vineyards in the country growing carmine. And those are Broad Run Vineyards in Louisville, Kentucky, Brookmere Farm Vineyards in Belleville, Pennsylvania, Ripken Vineyards and Winery in Lodi, California, and that's the vineyard where the ones that we're drinking today come from. Uh, Wisteria Farm and Vineyard in Stanley, Virginia. And finally, uh, the Kramer Vineyard in Gaston, Oregon, which also makes a Carmine Rosé, which seems really cool. Yes. Um, And that is basically all that I could find on (laughs) the Carmine. That is Awesome. And we kind of picked this varietal to explore on a whim. We were ruminating about what kind of episode we should have this time around. And we had, I guess, two Carmines lying around and decided to delve deeper. And it's kind of really interesting that there isn't that much on the internet. I mean, I think it's indicative of how, you know, a lot of varietals aren't well known and you know, the part of the vineyard and kind of showcasing it or or exploring it, you know, you might not get it in a restaurant, but you may get it if you explore like certain trails and, Mm -hmm. um, or certain regions. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. It's also, it's a bit strange to me that it never really took off. And a lot of the articles were sort of 
So I was kind of questioning why that never happened with no mm. real answers. But I guess it's because there are so many different weird genetically created varietals for different reasons like, you know, across the country. Um, a lot of it, I guess, is for marketing. You know, mm. people want your the big known, you know, your cabs, your Merlots, that kind of thing. Um, but considering how resilient it is with weather, um, how aesthetically pleasing it is in like the fall, mm-hmm. and in my experience, how really freaking good it is, um, it's kind of sad that it hasn't taken off more, um, especially in different like wine regions where, you know, it's mixed reviews um, to have a, a, a grape you know grows well there. Two really quick thoughts. One, I forgot this is the first time I'm drinking a Carmine that I remember. I may have had one with you beforehand, but this was before wine knowledge took firm root in my mind. So this is also a really interesting thing to reflect on. And then B, this is kind of like a a note that I was going to throw in at the end of the episode, but thinking about the effects of prohibition, you know, this stopped wine production in the United States for decades. And in the case of one of the wine regions that grows carmine, which is Pennsylvania, which I'll speak about in a moment, they didn't, you know, pass laws to allow for wine production until 1960s. So maybe it's just not taken off because it just, the grape itself hasn't had time to develop and mature in a way that, you know, cabs and, and Chardonnays just have such a long history or like the Zin, Old Vine Zin in Lodi has, mm-hmm. you know, decades and decades and decades of, I guess, vine growth and mm-hmm. to allow it to be more readily used and like for a winemaker to know like what to do with it. Yeah. I was also thinking maybe just because if there's only one vineyard in California growing it, at least one known public vineyard that's growing it in California, in Lodi, and the only winemakers making them are Ripken Vineyards themselves uh, and Big White House. These are two very small mm. batch, small production. You know, we're talking any given releases, tens to hundreds of cases at the most, not like, you know, the thousands of cases, more standard, you know, mm-hmm. quantity of production. And they're also not really known for being entered into the big sort of wine competitions, the, the big publicized traditional routes of wine a celebrity, uh, yeah. which maybe they'd be like more known and maybe, I don't know if the right celebrity wine person drinks it at the right time that can maybe help it take off. It's just not really in those circles. And um, yeah, I, I, I remember we, we mentioned this briefly during the Rosé episode and the prohibition article by Wine Folly also echoed this is that post prohibition, it was the 1960s, the time of like factory food, essentially synthetic, you know, um, applications and and fast food in a certain way. Coca-Cola was really big. And so the palate of the American public was trending towards the sweeter end. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, you know, I guess a joke among like some of the articles I read was, you know, the, the palate of Americans for wine is, you know, not the most distinguishing Uh, And that's changing, but slowly and only now. Mm -hmm. So maybe Carmine has a future boom coming in the next, you know, decade when people kind of catch up to the fact that it's a pretty stellar grape. I hope so. Yeah. So what do you think of this one? Um, 
Before I get to that, I do want to make a really quick correction on my extremely false information about the genome. <laughs> so I was thinking of 1953 when Watson and Crick discovered the double helix, which was the major genome DNA event that was lodged in my mind from the 1950s, not the sequencing of the first DNA. So, but still, early genomics was up and coming at the time that all of these uh, agricultural purposes were being utilized. So back to the carmine at hand. Um, it has, it's pretty heavy, um, if that makes sense. Like it has like a, it's not sweet, but it has the weight of something like a caramel, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, it's kind of tart. Yeah, I was going to say tart. It's acidic and almost like stringent to like a sour level. Mm -hmm. um, but it sits on the tongue, like mm -hmm. on the tip of the tongue. And then as it kind of finishes towards the end, um, definitely needs air. Yeah. It, it's, it's getting a little better <laughs> since you first poured it. That yeah. first sip was pretty overpowering. Um, it is mellowing out a little bit. I... I think I get, you said that there are hints of tobacco, mm -hmm. right? I can, I can get the tobacco. Yeah. Like a Tempranillo-y kind of a mm -hmm. leathery tobacco thing. Exactly. And it's, I wonder how this will change while it kind of grows, but, um, the tannins aren't particularly strong, uh, for the definition or the, the ways in which this, the reviews online had kind of, uh, cited as you know, medium mm -hmm. tannins and seems pretty tannin light upon first sip. Yeah, it is a 2015. So it's had a bit of age. I, there's not much information on how ageable this grape is. There's not much information on the grape. Um, but yeah, five years old. Um, maybe that's also why the tannins are a bit softer. I wonder if that'll be different in the 16. Mm. I'm glad we went 15 first. Um, do you want me to grab the aerator? I, and yeah, taste it. I okay. <laughs> and then we'll move on to Pennsylvania as a wine region. <laughs> well, that definitely helps. Okay. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> so we just aerated our second sip. Um, they were a pretty strong aerator. And that is making. A oh my God. Huge yeah. <laughs> huge. It finally tastes like it smells. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I was commenting that the the nose and the the taste were pretty dissonant. Um, it smelled just absolutely delicious and rich and fruity. Um, the taste, like I said, was a bit acidic and sour. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but now that this has been through the aerator, uh, it's matched up a lot, a lot more. It's opened up brilliantly. So if anyone's holding on to a 15 Carmine, I would recommend some air on it before you uh, serve it to guess. And you can kind of tell it, I mean, it's still a little bit sour, but I like sour wines uh, and not in a bad way, more tart, I guess, not sour. And that tartness mm -hmm. I can see holding up against a heavier meal because you want something to cut against. I don't eat red meat. But something like a burger, uh, I guess a steak. I don't know what one eats. What, what did you talking about steak? <laughs> I 
I've never had steak. <laughs> I don't eat mammals. <laughs> but one can imagine from my pescatarian perspective yeah. that it would hold up against something heavy. Yeah, no, tart's a really good word for it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right, so Pennsylvania. Um, who would have thought that Pennsylvania had a pretty thriving wine region in 1850? It was the third largest wine producing state in the United States. And actually, it's one of the oldest wine growing regions starting up in the 1600s. And prohibition kind of limited slash stopped this wine production until the 1960s, as I said before. And it's only recently that the, what we kind of discussed when we were talking about the Santa Cruz mountains, you have these wine trails and uh, more advertising and efforts going into highlighting and elevating local vineyards and how they may like connect to tourism in the region. One of the guess characteristics of Pennsylvania wine region is that it's cool and it often has a humid weather and grapes that generally thrive in that kind of weather are a bit fickle to grow um, which is why the carmine which was produced for exactly kind of that climate does well there and as an emerging wine region I thought it was really interesting uh, a couple bloggers were talking about how it's, it still has a lot of sweet wines. It's not necessarily come into its own as a wine region overall, because, you know, a lot of these vineyards are new or, or, or only a couple decades old. And so it, it made me kind of think briefly about what Kevin described to me um, as other regions he's been to that have sweeter wines that may be associated with like these younger vines mm-hmm. or just like the fact that, you know, bo- both vineyards and winemakers are relatively new to the game and may just be relying on the sweetness in order to just have a product until the wine, mm-hmm. the vines like mature enough to produce the more nuanced um, grapes that you have in, you know, regions like California, which have been producing for a very long time or in Europe. Yeah, and that was true when we were in Virginia, too, when we were in uh, the Shenandoah Valley and we were wine tasting. A lot of those wineries were less than a decade old. And usually, like, less than a decade old means they've only been actually releasing wine for a few years. So it's super, super young. And a lot of those were, no offense to uh, Shenandoah Valley, but sickeningly sweet. And I've experienced that in, in Maryland, in parts of New York, in Ohio, other sort of upcoming wine regions there's great stuff in all of those places mm-hmm. um, but i think the a lot of it does tend to fall on that on that side so i think it's just a byproduct of newer regions different experimenting and just newer like wineries um, and there was a note which i did not explore and would be really interested in kind of pursuing in another episode which was uh, a couple of the wineries or vineyards in Pennsylvania were experimenting with natural fermentation, which are like natural wines, which we kind of got into with when we were talking about orange wines a couple episodes back, which take on, you know, like longer time in the skins or touching the skins and, you know, um, using different ways of, of developing the wines. And so I think that may be an interesting way in which Pennsylvanian wine 
may take off in the coming decades as they kind of experiment and continue to refine these methods. Um, so popular wines in the Pencil region include Alvarinos, which are typically, or at least originated in, I believe, in Spain. Um, the Chamborcine, which the internet describes as a medium-bodied red wine that is a quote-unquote gateway to dry red wines. Uh, it's a French-American derivative, typically cherry to fruity flavored with earthy soft tannins. And um, of course, the carmine. So the Lake Erie wine region is characteristic of its terrain. And the website talks about how this is due to the Ice Age, which brought glaciers um, that carved out and gorged out the, the Great Lakes and allowed for fertile soil to develop along these ridges and the gravel that is characteristic of that region. So kind of cool the way in which, you know, these processes, geological processes from a, a long, long, long time ago have impacted the wine growing today. And I suppose the last thing I want to mention is that it was the Pennsylvania Limited Winery Act of 1968, which allowed for the establishment of small wineries in Pennsylvania to begin. So yeah, since 1968, this has been an emerging region and I look forward to one day traveling there <laughs> and tasting them myself. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. I was actually there a few weeks ago. Um, we were driving from Ohio to the Niagara region of New York. Um, we were going to Niagara for wine tasting. I'll talk about that. Not this episode, but sometime soon. Mm -hmm. um, but we drove through the Erie area. We actually stopped in Erie for lunch and drove along the coast. Um, and we were, it was like peak fall, East coast fall and Beautiful. the vineyards were just absolutely stunning. I think most of the ones where we were driving through were, um, they're not wine grapes. They're grapes for, for eating mm. and other food products. Um, although there was some wine in there, we definitely saw the signs for them, but it was so, so stunning just to drive through. It was mm. really, really pretty. We did not stop in Pennsylvania, any of the wine places. So that's still on our to-do list, but, um. Yeah, really cool. I cannot wait for the day when we have an episode about New York region wines as well, Erie Lake area, because I had a momentary encounter with a white wine from that region and fell in love. And so I'd love to know much more about the intricacies of that. But for another day. Yeah, I want to go there because it's really hard mm -hmm. to find because we're in California, it's really hard to find non-California wines. <laughs> um, there's something to be said that we're probably doing it better in many regards, but it's also a bit of a loss that there's just nothing available from these other really cool and unique wine regions. Um, so yeah, it's almost impossible to find a New York wine in California. So we'll just have to go, I think, or get them online or something like that. We should just go. As a New Yorker, we should go in the fall and, like you said, see the beautiful changing of the seasons and enjoy 
the really awesome plan that I'm sure is there. <laughs> maybe, by, maybe by next uh, fall, there's a, a vaccine that's that can travel more <laughs> safely. Um, I've heard wonderful things. I think New York's New York's also like a huge state, so I yeah. think the different wine regions are mixed reviews. But the Finger Lakes area, I've heard mm-hmm. really good stuff about, so yeah. I'm really excited. So we are tasting the 2016 Carmine from Big White House. So the <laughs> Kevin's making great, great hurrah faces. Um, so this is the, I don't know if sister label to the John Evans wine that we tasted before, but um, it also probably has a lovely background to it, which we may or may not read. Sorry, so the, these are from the same Lodi Vineyard, the Ripken Vineyard, um, by the same winemaker, one year apart. Oh my gosh. And they are completely <laughs> different. So different. Huh. I don't know what that taste is. This one is so much smoother and less acidic. Mm-hmm. It does not have that tartness. It is velvety and chocolatey. Even in the color, it does have more of that sort of brown, uh, amber color that you were mentioning that you were surprised you did not see in 2015. Mm -hmm. It is extremely different. It's oaky. It is oaky. That's what that is. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. A really, really soft (laughs) oakiness. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like oak. I'm going to love this wine. I promise. I'll try. But I don't like oak in wine, which is ironic or over oak. We'll have to ask him if he used different barrels for these. Yeah. You know, I was, I feel like I I saw a mention about oak and and aging for carmines, but I honestly don't remember where. Mm. So I'm also going to read the back of the the bottle real fast because it mentions what we were just talking about. This is from the 2015 Carmine. It's called the Imperium. And it says, Born in the light of celestial fires, the Imperium embodies the illumination of guidance of the highest of the ancient cosmologies. Svelte and elegant, rare and unrecognized, except by those who seek it out, the Imperium has a subtle power that takes time and initiative to appreciate. Like many gems of the universe, the Empyrean was not anointed with a destiny given at birth. In fact, its lineage was one of dozens of Professor Olmo's viticultural experiments crossing his Cabernet Carignan hybrid with other varieties. In those fertile days of the 60s and 70s, Olmo's viticultural experiments were expertly executed by Rip Ripkin and his family nursery. The progenitor? of the Empyrean was a single vine in the Ripken nursery, which caught their interest in the clone Carmine, as Professor Omel came to call his creation. That was many decades ago, and over that period, Rip has propagated from that single vine, a small vineyard of this rare vine. And though Rip has sold a few cuttings, John Evans' 70 cases of the Empyrean represents a significant fraction of this varietal, at least in the earthly realm. The Empyrean does not announce itself with the pure power punch of a California Cabernet. Allow the ethereal qualities of the Empyrean to overtake your senses 
as it will if you take a generous whiff of its exotic nose and let it linger in your mouth for a moment. The nose is the Empyrean's... <laughs> it's still going. This, the nose is the Empyrean's feminine side with red plum, vanilla bean, and blackberry. The mouth shows its masculine qualities with ripe red cherry rhubarb and a spicy, juicy finish. Buried deep within this beauty is the Empyrean element of brightness, bringing those who inquire to a much earlier age when mankind sought power and guidance from the light of the stars from which the Empyrean was born. Ripe red cherry rhubarb. Well, what alliteration. <laughs> they're known for their pretty over-the-top wine descriptions. Um, I'm not sure how accurate that one is in the description of the wine, but in the historical background, it's very good. I, I, <laughs> I appreciate all the state's references, so it got cherry points for me. Um, did you want me to read the 2016? Is there anything of, of note on it? Um, I can, well, okay. So I'll, I'll just call out that they have in the description Marionberry, which I don't know what Marionberry is, but it, oh, do you really? I do. Actually, my, <laughs> my uh, grandparents used to grow Marionberries in their backyard and my grandmother used to make a wonderful Marionberry pie. That's amazing. So yeah. I was just going to poke a little fun at like how descriptions often <laughs> cite berries that just I have never seen exist, like the gooseberry. The gooseberry, the elusive <laughs> gooseberry. The Marion berry I do know. It is not common, but it's, it's very close to a blackberry. Yeah, they said, yeah, it's like a, the best of the blackberry varietals. Mm. Uh, and then the other thing I want to point out was that they cited this as having vanilla and allspice, which I can completely resonate with the vanilla. Because to me, in my mind, vanilla and oak kind of mm -hmm. are similar, even that not necessarily in flavor, but in texture. Uh, well, I think a lot of that vanilla comes from the oak. Those Valley. flavors really go well together. Perfect. See, I'm on target. Uh, and so that makes a lot of sense to me. Also, we're going to cut this out, but there was, was it the mayor of D.C. or Tennessee who was named Marion Barry. <laughs> Wait, stop. Really? Right? Yeah. No, no, no. Muriel Bowser. Not Muriel Bowser. No, no. Mary Barry. Nope. Not Mary Barry. Oh, okay. Sorry. I was like, if you're talking about Mary Barry, that's like the best thing I've heard you say all day. Marion Barry? Really? Yeah, mayor of D.C. from 79 to 91. He has that oh. community center on 14th and U named after him. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah, he was yeah. super, super corrupt. He was definitely in jail like many times. Gotcha. Cocaine addict. Sorry, I thought you were talking about oh, Mary Berry. Second article. Marion Berry arrested on cocaine charges. <laughs> You're really good at your DC history. Well done. I knew that from growing up because mm -hmm. my mm -hmm. grandparents worked with them in some capacity. Or my grandfather worked with them in some capacity. It was mm -hmm. a nightmare. Gotcha. Back DC to the history. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So this wine has opened up a little bit as it's sitting and it's lost a little bit of that punchy oaky feeling, which I do not really enjoy. And I wonder how old he's aerated, but I, 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 they're very, very different, but I do enjoy both of them for different reasons. Yeah. I would say I have a, a very strong preference for the 16, but I've also had it before. So it's a, it's familiar to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I love this wine. I really, really love this wine. 
Um, it's so smooth. It has that. Mm. See, this has like you were describing caramel in the last one. This to me has that like caramely, even vanilla kind of a, yeah. a thickness, a, a subtle sweetness to it. Oh, it's just delicious. I'm sure I'll get there. So far, I like the aerated 2015, and then the unaerated 2016, and then the unaerated 2015. I'm sure you'll all follow this. Um, well, I would love for more winemakers to experiment with this grape. Agreed. Yeah, and I, I would love to see like the how fun it could be like I, I wonder like imagine Kievelstad which is um, a winery or a vineyard uh, in Sonoma like having an experimental KC version of a Carmine like I think that'd be a lot of fun also how fun would it be to try a Carmine Rosé I'd be that excited. sounds crazy it does sound crazy but I think it'd be fun mm-hmm all right, ready for wine of the week? Yeah. You wanna go first, let me go first? Mm, you can go first. All right, so my wine of the week is the Albastrel Blanc de Cabernet 2019. Uh, my mom made a random purchase from Lathwaite's, which is another online hmm. wine club store. I've, I've never used it before, but um, she's gotten some good stuff from there. And it is from the wonderful country of Moldova. And it is a white wine made from a Cabernet Sauvignon <laughs> grape, which I definitely had never heard of before. Mm-hmm. But basically, de-skin it and make it like a white. And it's just a, it's a, it's a cab white. Um, it is made by the winemaker Marion Haraba. Um, and it says it's a cold biting wind in the naturally organic vineyards of Stefan Voda ensures a lovely aromatic freshness. Um, described as very dry, flowery. Um, it's compared to a Viognier, hmm. which is a description that would make me really excited. But to be honest, I didn't really get too much out of it. Um, I didn't really like it very much, but I'm sharing it as my wine of the week because it's so cool and different. And we don't have a lot of wines from Moldova, so I just wanted to give them a shout out. Yes. There's really cool stuff in Eastern Europe um, on future episodes. Um, to me, this this was a little bit, a little bit too. I don't want to say sweet, like we were just talking about sweet white wines, mm-hmm. um, but kind of just juicy in a almost like a Welch's white grape juice kind of a way. Uh, much more subtle, obviously, than that. Um, definitely drinkable. Um, I would definitely enjoy a glass, but I wouldn't probably seek this wine out. But it was just so cool to see someone doing something crazy with a cab and making it into a white wine. I, I just had to share that. Great. Now that's, I cannot wait to taste it. I also really appreciate Eastern European wines, and it will be a whole episode or like five unto itself to explore the really cool things that are happening in places like Moldova. Or Serbia, Bulgaria, mm-hmm. Georgia. Oh yeah, Georgia! It's gonna awesome be awesome. John. Yes. <laughs> so to be explored in the future. The wine of the week that I want to shout out is from Italy. 
It is called a frappato, and it's from the winemaker or the wine production far and wide, 2019, and it is courtesy of Wink, a wine delivery service that, or not service, provider that I've mentioned before. And actually, it kind of reminds me a bit of of the tartness of the 2015 Carmine we tasted. I kind of described as tart, light, and just that little bit bitter, and it's definitely better served chilled. And the reason I really liked it is, you know, on these changing autumn days when in California, I find the changes in temperature swing drastically between like the 30s to you know, 65, 70 degrees. It's kind of nice to have a red that will warm you up, but the chill kind of, you know, feels as if it's hydrating. I know that's all false, but it feels really nice. Um, another really fun connection that I made with this wine was we went wine tasting this weekend in Carmel Valley, and we visited a couple of vineyards, but one of them was Parsonage, which was stellar spectacular it was so good and their reds were phenomenal i cannot shout out this awesome vineyard winemaker place enough and um the pinot noir by parsonage reminded me exactly of the frappato um tart light really refreshing a little bit chilled it was a beautiful sunny day And it was just perfect patio drinking. So shout out to every wine that's a little bit tart. Mm -hmm. And I, that's it. That was my wine of the week. Excellent choice. So I think that's the episode. We're going to definitely drink more wine. And we hope you do too. And talk to you again soon.